This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. In five, check for sound. Four, it's showtime. Three, let's two, go. One, Thanks to Rode Microphones and Harlan Hogan's VoiceOverEssentials.com, the home of the Portabooth Pro. This is the Pro Audio Suite podcast with Robert Marshall from Source Elements and Someone Audio Post Chicago. Darren Robbo Robertson from Voodoo Radio Imaging Sydney. From LA, George the Tech Whitam, the Tech to the VO Stars, and me, Andrew Peters, voiceover talent and home studio guy. Welcome to another Pro Audio Suite. This week we're digging down in a giant rabbit hole in the weeds of tech stuff. Um, We're joined by three guests. We have Alastair Lee, who's a voice artist based in Sydney. Uh, We have Michael Williams, who has helped him with his computer setup, and we'll explain why that is. And Richie Allum, who built Alastair Studio. Hopefully I got that around the right way. Beautiful. Excellent. (laughs) Good start. (laughs) Good start. Now, the uh, interesting thing about this is that Alastair is a blind voice artist, which makes this a very interesting uh, podcast indeed, certainly the subject matter, because if you think about having to navigate a home studio and you've got no sight, you can imagine how tricky that is. Hence the reason we have Michael and Richie with us. So first of all, give us a bit of background on your career, Alastair. Well, I... um I studied music at university, um, and uh, I've been a person that's always enjoyed challenges, whether they be ones that blind people aren't supposed to do, such as driving cars, or um, I did a lot of swimming and athletics and, and sports. So I've had a varied career. I worked in IT for a long time, and and I always, from the age of a child, listened to thousands of audiobooks. Um, particularly out of the UK, um, and that developed my love of the human voice. And then moving forwards from that, uh, when I finished high school, a friend of mine suggested that I should, you know, think about doing voices. Uh, he was a blind voiceover artist by the name of Matty Ponsonby, who many of you, or many of us that have been around for a long time would remember. And Matt sort of mentored me about how the industry worked and what was required I then approached um, one of the agents at the time who knew Matt very well and they mentored me as well and said, look, um, you know, go off and learn a little bit about life and, you know, come and see us when you're ready. And so I went off to university, finished uni, got a full-time job and and was doing sort of voiceovers on the side of that Um, and then sort of left the IT world about 10 or 11 years ago and sort of got into voiceovers full-time. Do you think the IT background was in some way helpful? Yes and no. I think um, having an interest in all things electronic and mechanical uh, means that I don't fear pulling something apart if it breaks. Um, yeah. You know, my studio builder, Richie, came over the other day to find me testing a new type of reciprocal saw so I can chop up logs in my back garden because I decided that a chainsaw was a bit too dangerous. <laughs> so right, right. I suppose, you know, I suppose... My that, stress um, levels were only mildly triggered. Yeah. That day. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but to answer George's question, um, yes, it does, because it allows you a knowledge of sound equipment which is relatively important um and the second thing is that you're not frightened of 
if you can't access something, you find a way around it, as we've had to in the case of using Source Connect and various other equipment. Um, you know, the big debate of whether you use a Mac or a PC, for example. Uh, Macs were the mainstay in audio for a long time with Pro Tools. I've decided not to go down that path, and, and Michael and Richie can elaborate on that as well. Yeah, so you have an aptitude for technology, which, and now any voice actor can attest, especially now, um, is very helpful, right? I mean, there's no denying that. Huge. You're not intimidated by the technology, you know? I mean, if your Braille breaks and you've got to pull it apart and fix it, you know, it's it's an old-fashioned typewriter, for example. You know, I've got some tools I can pull it apart, regraze all the parts. I haven't done that for a long time, but, you know, it can help to be able to do that. Yeah. So, uh, so to, to get everyone started and give us an understanding, how when your average voiceover artist records a script, they walk into the studio, they hit record on their recorder, they stand behind the microphone on, and away they go – what does that look like for you? Well, um, the difference being is that I obviously can't read print. Um, to clarify, I've got absolutely no sight. So I'm profoundly blind in that sense, um, or completely blind. So there's no... I always say to people, people say, oh, blind or visually impaired. And I always say, well, there's no vision to impair. So let's get that out of the way and <laughs> move on. And were you that way from birth? Yes, I was. I was born very premature, and the oxygen caused that lack of sight um, amongst you know a couple of other health challenges. But um, to answer your question, uh, Robbo, what I do is I translate the script into Braille. Um, so that's called transcribing. So either in the old days, I used to use what's known as a Perkins Brailler, and you can get pictures of those. It's a big old-fashioned typewriter, and that's what Matt would do. Yep. And you'd get someone to read it to you, or I'd have to ring someone on the telephone or read it on the computer manually, line by line, and Braille it, remembering every line, which took ages when I was doing you know, 10 or 15-page corporates, you can imagine. And I'm a fast typist, but that used to take hours because you'd have to check to make sure you'd have the commas and the punctuation. Now... The technology has advanced so I can use an embosser. Um, and that's basically a fancy way of describing a big braille printer. So for me, what I do is I transcribe that before I go to a job. And if we're doing it in another studio, the client or the agent will have the script sent to me about half an hour beforehand, if possible. And sometimes it's been tighter than that. I then edit the script. If it's in a PDF, I have to put it into a format that can be translated. And then I print it and then I whiz off to the job or in the case now I can use my own home studio to connect anywhere in the world. So I'll put that script in Braille in front of me and, and read it. Um, obviously having checked that my gear is all running and active and ready for a record. So how do you go on a big 14, 15 page corporate if you're actually in a studio, not at home, um, remembering changes and things like that? How does that work? Um, you just learn to. When Before I had a talking phone, I could remember over 300 phone numbers. So it's it's basically when your memory is, is pushed, and I can't do that now, obviously, because I've got an iPhone that talks, but when you have to rely on your memory, you learn to develop. It's like a muscle, essentially. Um, so they could make changes in, say, halfway through a paragraph, and I'd remember those. Reading along, I'd make a little scratch on the Braille if I was coming up to the words that they'd want to change. And so the Braille will be slightly softer, and that will be my trigger cue. Yeah, okay. So mechanically then, hit, like hitting record on the recorder, actually creating and sending the file, is that all voice assistance these days, I would presume? Uh, no, speech synthesis. They're two very different things. This is something that um, people often confuse. Um, you can 
talk to a computer using software, um, I find that's not as reliable as the actual the other way around, which is the computer talking to you. So I use a mainstream screen reader, which is JAWS for Windows, and that's one of the mainstream main ones that most blind people use when they're using Windows. I mean, there are a couple of others around, and you can use VoiceOver on the Mac, but JAWS is the main one. So JAWS will, and Michael can probably explain this better than I can, JAWS will translate what's on the screen into spoken word. Um, so that's how you know I can browse the web, web, read a newspaper, set up a recording session, make sure my everything is running as it should be. Um, and that's how I can use Dropbox. That's Dropbox is lovely um, to you know I can record a job, edit it if it needs it, um, then put it, pop it up into Dropbox and send a message through to the client. Or yep, that's ready to go and and make sure that's there for them. Well, I'm, I'm actually very curious about um, what software you're using because I know there are some softwares um, that are far more friendly towards using without a mouse, for example, um, and using uh, keyboard commands. So I, I'm curious, and I know that for some reason, Windows seems to be better for that. So how, how did you land on what software? What do you use and how did you figure out what to use? Well, we looked at using a Mac. I've got a Mac laptop that I run VM a virtual machine on run Windows on it as well. So I've done both. I decided that I wanted to move away from the Mac just for a change. And um, I felt that Pro Tools as a package, although a lot of studios use it, and Robbo can probably quantify this as well as George can, Pro Tools is getting very heavy on the front end. It's It gets very sluggish. It can crash for no reason. And I didn't want that. I looked at running it on a PC. I spoke to a blind fellow in America who developed a program called Flow Tools, which is accessible for the blind. And I just decided, no, nope, I'm going to go my own way with this one. And I found Reaper as a door. And Reaper has an enormous um, blind community support which allowed me to install specialised scripts that have been written for Reaper for the blind to be able to use it, um, completely keyboard-based, So, which is really, really fabulous. I, mean, I remember getting arguments in, uh, with uh, some of like the younger editors and how I tend to scrub, and I, I use Pro Tools but very zoomed out, so the tracks are little tiny squiggly waveforms that are kind of useless, but it doesn't bother me a lot because I do a lot of scrubbing to find my in point and my out point. And uh, yep. it's, I'd, I'd imagine you're doing the same, a lot of scrubbing to, to find your exact yes. positions within Reaper. Yep. Yep. And what's interesting about Reaper is when it scrubs, it scrubs the whole timeline compared to Pro Tools, which only scrubs a track. Oh. Kind of. I mean, you can get Pro Tools to kind of scrub the whole timeline, but it's more of a play during fast forward and rewind, I think. Uh. But it's not like Reaper where I, I, in fact, I'm not even sure how you get Reaper to scrub an individual track. I think it just scrubs the whole timeline and that's that. Look, I'm still, I'm no Reaper expert. Uh, mind, I haven't been using it incredibly long. Um, there are others that would be able to safely answer that one for you. But yes, I believe you can. You can adjust all of those parameters. Um, but I've also got a fader port, which allows me to physically handle handle buttons and knobs as well so i've got a physical feel for what's going on as well as being able to operate it through the keyboard do you, do you use the single fader fader point or the eight fader and i've got an eight fader. it's the fader port eight the eight okay yeah. so yeah you're Our able personas. to mute yeah yeah mute, mute every other track and i can do that i don't use it much at the moment as i'm still sort of learning my way around it but as richie and michael will attest when i started i was very daunted i had a a, a, a blind genius um 
come in and, and assist me, uh, who's very involved with Reaper, and he taught me a lot of all the commands, and we set it all up together, and Richie spent the weekend with this chap, um, and together we made it work, and uh, and that's, but it's still, you know, there's a lot of things you've got to listen to and learn as well, so you, you need to, as a blind person, probably have more understanding of what you're doing than a sighted person, because you can just click on this and, and, and click on that and click on a window here, and, and you don't always really need to know what it's doing. When you're blind, because you're relying on that audio input, you do have to have more understanding of what you're actually s- switching on and off on and why. So your knowledge needs to be a little bit stronger as well. It is. If, you, if you've looked at a lot of other software and you're used to operating other software, it it's still daunting. Uh <laughs> It is hugely. It's there are complexities that I will never need and never understand at this stage. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's trying to find the best way of making it work. Yeah. Just while we're on that topic, um, just from my own experience um, dealing with um, dealing with Pro Tools, is it's completely locked off in so many different ways. Like just historically, like you wouldn't be able to use any like. Um, MIDI devices or program them up unless they were sort of sanctioned, you know, M-Audio gear or or Avid gear or whatnot. Um, Ableton, um, we were thinking about that at the start as well, but it's really, it, even though it's got like that whole programming language, like the Max for Live and stuff behind it, the actual interface is very graphical, so it doesn't lend well to, you know, screen readers and stuff like that. Um, and we've... we've found that over and over again but reaper seemed to be one that was programmable you could run scripts um all of the um the text on the screen and stuff was um accessible um so that's that's one of the reasons why we sort of drew drew to that yeah i i'm i'm a big fan of how flexible reaper is and you know it's like it's got a million menus and options but like if if you were asked a question can reaper do that and you were in Las Vegas, your best bet would to say be say yes. Because for instance, things that people don't even don't even know about Reaper and not really about this particular subject here, but you can edit video in Reaper. Who knew that? Like like literally with wipes and titles and the whole deal. Might might be a bit of a far I I, I can do lots of things, but I think that one might be a bit <laughs> for a side of it, you know, Might be yeah, a few well, frames that don't video. quite fit in with the aspect mm-hmm. ratio. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I, it's a. Uh, it, there are some people that really know Reaper, and there's a lot of people that can functionally do basic things with Reaper, and that's. I would say I'm more in the in the latter of knowing how to functionally make it work. But those that have gotten under the hood of it and learned to customize it, um, you know, it's quite impressive. And that to have a a community around the use of Reaper that are the oh, um, non sighted users is a huge, huge thing. I mean, I. I so rarely get the uh, opportunity to work with people that that aren't that don't have sight. Um, but when I do, I will definitely keep that in mind. I mean, to know that that's out there. I've only had one direct consultation with a woman who was a who was a who was a blind voice actor, and I got to work with her in person in her home, and I watched her work SoundForge, mm. and that was the one that she uh, SoundForge and, and Goldwave yeah they were the ones she mm. flew around that thing it was just absolutely amazing you know once i upgraded the equipment and put the mic right in the right spot for her and made sure the physical setup was ready i just watched her go and it was remarkable so yeah those softwares that have customizable keyboard shortcuts and of course work with screen readers that's huge that is really cool to hear that 
Uh, on that sort of topic of accessibility, that brings me back on to, you know, when we set up the studio, one of the things that, you know, having good ears, um, when we were putting all the sound panels in to the room where I've got it, and Richie had nearly finished, and he said, oh, how do we think? And I said, no, I want more panels. And uh, his comment was, I wish I had more clients like you. Um, but, you know, I am pedantic about it because I want it to be right. So... With my setup here, you know, the, the bit of a gear list to explain to people, I use separate preamps for each of my mics um, so that I have physical control of knobs and switches. Um, you know, we went through a lot of issues in testing various audio interfaces. So I've got an RME, um, uh, and Richie can probably explain better how we've got everything connected and wired, as that's his domain, but I've got a, a Neumann U87 connected to an Avalon VT737SP. I've got a 416 connected through to a, and I always get the name of it wrong, this this Neve copy that I've got. What's it called, Richie? Uh, it's a Golden, a golden Age, age. Um, um, Neve style preamp. It's yeah, a, it's a 416. Then I've the got, yeah. Yeah, 416, the, the new yeah. standard in name for that voice, that microphone. Is it though? See, we've agreed to that on this right, show because. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Because you have the American and the Australian, so we so. decided to come up with our own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I like it. So the forty one six, which I find is is good, and then the RME U, um, UCX Fireface USB three interface, which Richie can talk more about and explain why we've gone that route as well with setting it up. Then I've also got a Claret. Uh, for pre focus right as well it sits off that so that if someone comes in i can plug their laptop in and it doesn't affect any of my setup i've got a, a presonus um, v2 studio monitor control set to control speakers and headphones again so that i can turn knobs and then i've got the fader port um, a custom built pc with modified fan control so the fans don't make a noise and we even picked specific drives in the nas so that they would be as quiet as possible so you wouldn't get any vibrations so it's sort of being very pedantic about making sure that the setup is top notch and that the audio quality is good you know having good good cans really good to audio monitors because playing back sound to me is critical just to check things and um yeah the bad dynamics i love but it, it's that's a more expensive way of setting it up um there's no doubt about that whereas you could just have a very simple single audio interface with a you know relatively inexpensive microphone and and some people can't do that um my attitude was i wanted to set it up once and set it up right and so i decided to push the butt right out so you have the uh, aerodynamic headphones the dt770s or what do you what yeah, do you dt770s yep okay good uh i've got dt770s got two pairs of those um and i've also got a korg and that controls on my line level inputs, which means I can slide not uh, slide switches so I can feel where they are in a position um, to settle my levels. The other thing we've also got, which I think more sighted people should use, is an audio level indicator, which the hotter I get, it will beep at a different pitch um, to show that obviously I'm getting a bit warm um, in a level. And it's great because you don't have that? to look at um it was, uh, I think, it was like an English university, like, um, like a, re like a maybe a, a, a accessibility research. It was a guy from, yeah, it was a guy from Sweden that worked with them, yeah, and then you know getting plugins that work well, so that it makes it easier for you to edit in Reaper as well. You know, we found that Isotope plugins worked well. Um, getting good pop shields. Um, I don't know. I, yeah. Just by nature, you have great ears, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's part of your survival, yep. right? So you have great ears there. You have music training. 
So that also gives you great hearing. You're going to yep. have incredibly attuned hearing. And so everything now matters. When you said you use the DT, when you said use the DT seven seventies, I had a little you know I was like oh yeah that's right because those are the ones I have you know and so I go okay if if you like them I know they're pretty good headphones <laughs> and it's the same with the Denaudio mon- uh, monitors you know I tested quite a few and I and Richie and I looked at those and I just loved it's such a true sound that comes out of them they hide nothing and that for me was very important i i what i call blind tested all these mics before i went and got them and i know that you guys have had podcasts about different mics recently i chose the two mics i've got because they're industry standards um i wanted the avalon using it with a neumann because it's just a beautiful combination and some of the 416 running this little other little um preamp as well because it just they just work and you know when you come to source connect and the way everything's set up and this is where these guys you know michael and richie have put in such an amazing effort i can then change mics in the middle of a session if i need to or you know it, it's all there i can just click a click a button or or press a, a down arrow key and that's the thing it's and so for clients on the other end who they don't even have to know that i'm blind for example so there's never you never have to say anything or right. make it about that and that's i don't want that to define me as a voiceover artist which is you know i just need the script five seconds earlier and if you're working with someone overseas they email it through to you anyway so it's it's not difficult uh it's it, 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 that vt770 uh, or the vt i'm sorry getting my numbers mixed up the vt737 sp is a beautiful piece of industrial engineering like the, it's a beautiful looking piece i imagine it's also a beautiful feeling one to operate because of its you know, the way it's laid out, the knobs are all very easy to, you can probably tell exactly where every knob is, you know? Yeah, you can. And that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, we went that way. Same with the Korg, where I can adjust my line levels. Same with the RME, because we run quite a few different things as compared to the average. We've got a screen reader running as well, which is can be a little bit intensive in terms of power consumption and other things. We had to be careful with the graphics card set up on the motherboard because I didn't want anything slowing the machine down. Um, we also made sure that the RME handles everything. So Richie was able to go into their software at the back end called Total Mix and configure it so that everything is controllable for me with knobs and dials. But it's would, all digital. Would you like to have a little chat about that now, seeing as yeah. we're on the, we're on the I'd topic? I'd love to know how and why, how, how you went with RME. And I mean, I know it pretty well, but it's one of the, again, of, of all the systems, it's one of the little bit more daunting but that's yeah. probably why it's so good for your yeah, use case. Um, so yeah, with, with daunting comes flexibility and it's that um, that super German, um, you know, mindset, if you like. Um, so, <clears throat> like, coming into the project, I'd worked very minimally with blind clients before. <clears throat> so I, I felt like I had some kind of idea of, you know, how we were going to tackle everything, which turned out to be wrong. Um, and uh, there was a lot of trial and error with stuff, um, but we ended up going with the RMA firstly um, because it had um, some uh uh, like compression and all of that kind of stuff on as well. Like I thought we could use that as a bit of a limiter, which might be useful. Um, but I also got it because they had the little USB controller for it, um, which they called the Arc. Um, and I would have thought that would have been able to cover all of the duties like setting levels and headphone levels and all of that kind of stuff. But it didn't actually work out for the way we wanted to use it. 
So um, the way we wanted to use it was have the mics going straight into the preamps, like like hardware preamps, because then Alistair was able to, um, you know, basically set the gain and um, anything apart from that would be just a bonus, like a bit of EQing on the way in and a little bit of compression and, and whatnot on the way in. So that was just made it hands-on control and that's like the, you know, obviously the, the most useful for for Alistair. Um, so then we had line level coming into the RME. Um, so without having to control the RME's preamps, um, we needed a way to just be able to do like monitor mixes for um, both of the microphones and also um, software returns coming from the computer as well. And so we needed to be able to just do those monitor mixes and that little arc controller, even though you could program it for literally everything like um, outputs, um, headphone levels and their actual own um, preamp levels, um, you couldn't craft monitor mixes with them. It's just something that hadn't been programmed into them. So um, that was a bit of a bummer. So that's where we got the, like a little Korg nano control with, it has like eight faders and you know, mutes and solos and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and what I was able to find, not in the actual documentation, but online, like on a forum somewhere, somebody like reversed engineered all of the MIDI control for the, for the RME. Um, so we're actually able to just assign every uh, fader on the Korg to be just like a, um, you know, if you put it down, it's down. If wherever you put it, that's that's the volume that it's going to be. So we're able to um, set up like a like a really basic monitor mixer for Al and literally go right. What's the level of the headphone that Al wants to monitor back? Um, what's the uh, sorry the the microphones I should say? Um, but we also had virtual audio outputs for all of the things on his computer. So there was a separate one for the screen reader. Um, there's one for uh, Source Connect. There's another one for Reaper. Um, so with all of those, like while Al's like doing a take and he's realised that, you know, Jaws is still yapping on in the, the, the screen reader's yapping on in the, the background, just, just by feel, um, he can just turn it down because all of the things are connected through that RME and it can handle it so successfully. Um, you don't get any like sample rate mismatches and things aren't trying to go over the top of each other. So that ended up being like the perfect solution. Like it couldn't, it couldn't have worked out any better. And that took a lot of time too with uh, Richie. And, you know, we, as I said, we sort of we found our way because we tried with the Claret at first and it, it had some delay and some issues with latency. And that's why, you know, I mean, there's a big price difference between the two interfaces. But I kept the Claret so I could use it as a spare for whatever reason. And then, you know, if I needed, if someone needed to come in and do something, um, they can and they can just plug straight in and it doesn't affect my setup at all which is the main thing, because I didn't want people adjusting it, because, you know, having spent thousands setting it up and a lot of hours of everyone's time. And a good, and a good example of that is, like, with the, with the RME, it was able to 
um, just set up a, like an auxiliary send, if you like, from the microphones going out line outs, which would feed the focus right, and then just have them coming on the way in as well, which means that you can have guests there and they can use an interface and have it plugged that interface into their, you know, laptop or whatever, but it just leaves OWL's pristine monitoring system in, in intact, basically. Yeah, it's like a press distro. Right. So, Richie, did you come across any challenges in the build? Oh, hundreds. <laughs> what are the I main mean, ones? The one that we were just talking about before, the, the setting the level, um, I, we originally tried to ta- tackle it um, thinking that I'd be able to get, I don't know, like, and just trying to brainstorm it, like, how do you how do you set a level when you can't see the meter? It was such a something I would never have thought about in my in my life, um, and just racking my brains on how to do it. And we ended up finding the that accessible peak meter, which I posted in the chat uh, just now. Um, yeah, I was trying to figure out if if I could get. Um, the it's uh, called total mix in the RME to to spit out like MIDI of the the meters going or anything like that. And as Michael Williams uh, could attest, like there was no real easy way to capture that um, in some kind of custom JAWS script or something like that. So we ended up um, just running um, for now, and this is how it still is, even though it's not ideal, but we've got just a like a free version of Ableton running in the background. Um, so it just hosts the copy of that VST plugin. So um, Al can push the volume of the Ableton output up on his Korg um, uh, controller um, and it beeps and then he knows he's hit zero. So then... Uh, you, then you can just back the pre-amp off, you know, X amount, and then you're, you're in the ballpark. I'd say that was one of the – getting all of that stuff set up was definitely one of the, the, the major challenges. Which gives you options as well because it's all very well to rely on the computer to do things, but I wanted to have both options. So, I mean, in Reaper I can see what the DB levels are and I can set limits, but I wanted to be able to have a physical hardware way of doing it as well, and that's probably a more old-fashioned way, but it also means that when you're working and when you've got a bazillion things going on, you can just reach your hand out and move a dial or a switch. And so that way I think it makes it more seamless. Yeah, and I would say too that working with Al um, in such such depth as well, I've definitely learnt things that I'll apply to any studio situation actually, and and also I do a lot more getting the computer to read me stuff as well, which I never really worried about before, but it's actually really handy. So, so you've probably found some ways to enhance a, a sighted voice actor's usability. Oh, hundred percent. Uh, especially with the, the 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 RME, like I've always liked RME. Like I've set up lots of them over the years, and I do like that um, complicated, versatile kind of equipment. Especially like in, like in any situation. Um, but being being able to control it all via that MIDI thing, that's that that was like quite quite the learning experience. Really useful, you know. Alistair, were you clear in your head what you wanted when you dived into this project or were you more looking for guidance or a mix of both or how did that work? Um, mix of both. I, I knew what microphones I wanted. Um, Richie and I went to a friend's place and we tested a whole pile of them. Um, as Richie in the Australian voice I've seen has built quite a, a lot of the top VO studios, he's can sort of know what gear they use. And because we weren't doing the Mac, you know, Apple G duets were never going to be possible. And same with Universal Audios, they weren't going to be as accessible. Um, 
So it was a combination of, yes, I knew what some of the gear was that I wanted, but this was a whole complete new way because we had to find ways of making it very seamless so that at the, you know, on the coalface, the client has no idea how much is going on to make it work. It just means that when they log in through a Source Connect session or if I'm using Skype to link in with a client, it works perfectly. They don't have to say, oh, can you bring that level down? Because you're already ahead of them. And that means they'll book you for some more because you're making sure that it's as easy and seamless for you to work with them as possible. So... Michael can also explain, you know, with the JAWS and getting the screen readers to work with Source Connect. You know, when I first looked at Source Connect itself, that was not accessible. Um, and I thought, well, hang on, it has to be because it's the mainstream. You know, everyone seems to be going that way with moves away from ISDN and various things. And I thought, well, we have to find a way around this. And uh, I, I sort of don't take no for an answer. And if there's a way, I will stop at nothing to find it. Yeah. Well, interestingly, the Australian ISDN network was shut down just the other day, three days ago. Down yes, it went. I saw that. Disappeared. Yep. Gone. I, I yep. thought it was yep. shut down last year. See you later. No, they, they, they sent out notices. I think AP talked about it on the show last year. They sent out notices saying it's going. Uh, and I think it was Monday or Tuesday this week. It, um, it's quietly slipped away. So just give me a second here. If anybody in Australia needs ISDN, Source Elements has VISDN. <laughs> <laughs> just saying. There you go. There is a solution. Nice. There's a subtle plug. <laughs> it's direct ISDN using your code. We, we, might, we might have to talk. Yeah. Would you explain um, then your part of this process and, and getting those screen readers to work with Source Connect? That would be really fascinating to find out. Well, especially because Source Connect was not at all designed with screen reading and any of that no. in mind. I got a call from Alistair and he uh, wanted me to come around and have a look, so, which I did. And um, so I got involved and uh, I've been working in the um, blindness industry for about 20 years. So I sort of do this stuff all the time. So I just had to look at the process, what he was wanting to try and to do. And um, JAWS basically hooks into events. So if there's anything, any a new text event happening on the screen, um, JAWS will work out where its focus is and read it if it's applicable. Otherwise, it will ignore it, but we can capture it if we need it. Then just assigning shortcut keys so he can navigate rather than having to tap 15 times. He can have a quick short key to jump to a certain area or click on a button um, to uh, just get the process working efficiently. Um, and JAWS also hooks into the video intercept driver, so it can um, read things or, or do things quite interestingly there, as well as using COM objects and uh, MSAA, which is the older uh, accessibility um, from Microsoft. They're using UIA as well now. So, um, yeah, all of that um, sort of equates to just tools that you can use to um, do the job that the person wants to do. So, yeah, the important part about my job is just to understand the process. So I do need to know um, exactly how he wants to work it and, um, you know, join the dots to get it all working for him. If I may ask, particularly with Source Connect version 3.9, which, as I said, is, you know, its base code goes back to 2005, and we didn't, you know, I, I hate to admit it, but we didn't really think about blind people when we, when we, we were happy to get the first version out. And so Source Connect went on this lineage where it, it had no um, access into the accessibility features of the Mac, but I'm wondering, how did you do it? Did you do it with like screen coordinates? So if you know Source Connect's always in the same place and the connect button is here and these screen coordinates and the, you know, the contacts list is there. Um, I'm just curious how you were able to pull some of that off. 
it's a combination of a few. Um, you did actually have uh, some UI there that I could uh, draw on. So um, I did with the uh, logon, it was very difficult. I had to actually use screen coordinates there um, and just know where the window was going to be if you moved it and, uh, you know, adjust it accordingly. So, yeah, a bit of bit of uh, everything. That's the thing about uh, scripting. It's, it's never the same, unfortunately, because you programmer guys use plugins sometimes um you don't want to write the stuff yourself and you, you might write everything else accessible but the plugin you're using um is not accessible so yeah you just have to draw on all those elements that jaws hooks into to be able to get the job done so jaws knows the location of the overall source connect window and then if yes, it gets moved we'll, on we'll the screen that. for whatever reason that's it that's great I I set up another blind user and I didn't go that far. I, I basically told him never move Source Connect. Yeah, that's <laughs> so not I, I used um, Automator. <laughs> I, I used Automator and, and Apple to to do the same thing, where you know it, it would launch and then a few seconds later he could type his password in. Actually, it was already remembered, and then he could click a I think tab and it would click right with the login button, and then boom, he's logged in, and then. Luckily, if he always accepted the connection, when the connection came in, he just had to hit enter to accept the connection. If not, I never figured out how to possibly read the contacts list for him. Just to explain how I approached that one, with that um, uh, login process, um, I just decided to um, automate it completely. So um, we have some uh, pre... He puts in his username and password and, and JAWS will remember that. And then he'll just hit a hotkey. It will then move to those controls, put the password in. Then it sits and waits for that event, for the change, like that's the, the logon password screen. And then when it drops into the other screen, JAWS will be notified of that. Then I kick in and move to um, an area on the screen that was more useful for him, which was the connect list. And that was done UIA. And so you were able to read the contents of the connect connection, the, the uh, contacts yeah, list yeah. as well? Um, yeah. So, yeah, it sort of worked out for him. Uh, it's not a big program, so it wasn't a very big job to do. Because then the up-down arrow t- takes you through the contacts list, so that's not that's, that's too right. hard there once you're in it. So I can move up and down and see who's logged in, whether they're busy or not. And that's crucial because, you know, you can then, right. if it doesn't connect or times out, which it can do if a person's not on, it'll tell me that. Um, and, it, look, it's it's a little bit clunky, and that's why with version 4 it'll be interesting to get involved with the development of that, and I'm very well, excited I, I saw already that they, being um, able to work with they, Source. They got you some alphas for version 4, I believe. Not yet. No, I'm still waiting they to, did, well, to move forwards on that. But uh, <laughs> Oh, well, yeah. there you go. Um, but I'm very excited because, you know, it's giving it's giving other blind people options, basically. And, and also, because so many people now use Source Connect, it brings back that, you know, Michael says it's a little job, and for him it might be. But for me, it was enormously significant that he was able to find a workaround and make it work effectively. Um, you know, Source Connect now you can use through the web, obviously, and, and people do. But for us, obviously, using Standard or Pro was fundamentally important for audio quality. Hmm. Um, so you know. so let me let me ask one other question. Are you are you able to know the status of that receive indicator? Do you uh, do you know what I'm speaking about? There's like the send is almost always active. It's hard to come up with a situation where you can't send, but 
it's good to know if you're receiving or not. And and I, I wonder if you're able no. to, like, like, you, like the only way you know if you're receiving is if you hear them. Just to take you back one step, what do you hear when you see someone's online? Like, do you hear Darren Robertson online or what? Yes. What? Yeah, okay. So, if I, if I, I'll just turn up, I'll turn up my speakers just quickly and I'll show you. It'll be very fast, but this will give you some idea. So, I'll just turn them up. So, again, I'm reaching out to the Korg. I'm sliding up the JAWS volume knob. So, so I'm now in my Source Connect window. So, it says Robo 2 connected. So, I've just jumped up with two keystrokes and I can see. So, you know, I can see that Andrew is online, but he's not connected to anyone. Echo 44 Mono is online. So... I can. That's yeah. how I can do that. Yeah. Wow. Um, it's so and fast. So, yes, it so, is, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, it is. It's like, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it sounds like a, the, the legal yeah. at the end of a spot. <laughs> yeah. The other thing is also with these things is you don't sometimes want too much verbosity. So being able to slide that knob down for me is crucial because if I've if I've set up a session with someone in Source Connect, I go into Reaper. Right. See, it's just it's reading with a status. It's it, because obviously someone's come on, come offline. It's still reading that Robo Two is connected. You don't want that in the middle of a recording. Mm. So I've just turned that right down, so it's not coming through the speakers. So of it's, course, it's got to find a way long term to maybe not have it read that all the time. But sometimes you do want it. I'm interested to go back a step further, even to something we were talking about. We touched on a little while ago. Um, in terms of the home studio in general, here in Australia, which we've sp- spoken about on this show many times before, um, up until really up until COVID, there's been massive pushback against home studios. Mm-hmm. How did you find that pre-COVID and how are you finding it now? Um, I think pre-COVID, and it is different in Australia because often in many cases you'll go into a studio and do a job. So for me, that meant jumping in a cab with a guide dog and a brailler. I always took the brailler as a backup in case, you know, there were massive script changes and I could do them on the fly. And I decided pre-COVID, obviously we looked at, I started talking to Richie back in September, October, and then, you know, he was busy doing a build, so I had to wait. Uh, It will never replace me going into a studio because I don't, I don't want to, I'm not in competition with mainstream studios. And this is something that in Australia, you know, one needs to be respectful of um, as well. It's basically, for me, having the home studio allows me as a conduit to connect anywhere, whether it's a studio here or a studio overseas. And it means that I don't have to jump in cabs all the time, uh, which I'm fine with doing. You know, it, it, it was good having the guide dog. You can find doorways and buildings. But, you know, that always added an extra layer of complexity to jobs where sometimes I'd have a client, for example, that lived 50 minutes away in their studio, and I, I one day had a job that came in, the agent rang me, oh, can we do this job? So I brailed it in the cab, going over bumpy roads. As I was getting up there, I got in there with four minutes to spare, was in the studio, did the job, came out, and then caught a cab back home. So the costs of, the, of doing those sorts of things as well um, get quite expensive when you're running around in cabs everywhere because you can't just get a train or a bus to some of these places because, if you A, if you haven't been to them before, you couldn't find them. And B, you know, you can't always find a building using a GPS on the phone, for example. So you'd have to... 
you know, be pretty organised and, you know, there was that element of complicated navigation. So having a studio here allows me to remove that step so I can literally have the script come in, I edit it, put it into Notepad, which I love because it's nice and simple, take all the formatting out that everyone puts in because if you've got a Braille sheet with lines of text on it in print where you've got gaps where people have it for formatting, I remove all of those because then you might be reading something and you've got half a page with no Braille on it. So being able to do that is quite handy. But, you know, to come back to your question, Darren, it's I think it's a wonderful thing being able to have the option if you need to audition for something. Um, you can do that very quickly. So, And also, that this is one of the reasons why I put in top-end gear, because it basically means that if a studio here is unsure or... Because, you know, it meant that they would never have to question the audio quality coming out of this end. And I wanted to make sure that that it was top level. I, I, I find that often the, the really top-end voice talent have better equipment than some of the <laughs> studios. Like, you know, like maybe well, the best signal path literally is to go remote in some of those situations. Well, look at AP. I mean, AP's it's, got a better studio yeah, than some needs. some audio engineers I know. <laughs> I know. It's yeah. like he's killing it. Again, comes back to the world of, yeah, having good gear is, is important. Are, are you familiar with like the the brother P-Touch labeling systems? Have you, or, or the, like the sort of labelers that they really pop the letters through the plastic and then it's a sticky thing that you can put on something. I'm wondering if there's an equivalent for Braille and I'm wondering if you've labeled all your critical knobs and faders with Braille or you just no. know it. I just I just know it. It's I know it by know feel it. and by memory. Um, right. and that's the same thing with you know pulling a car engine apart or rewiring electrics. You learn to remember all of those. It's like you know touch memory but Braille, in a sense, works the same way using paper. It forces the dots up, punches mini holes in the paper. So, yeah, I am aware of what that is, but I would never use it because it's not... Some of the buttons and switches, you don't have enough clearance to stick Braille levels. Braille is very bulky, so that wouldn't work in this sort of scenario. I don't know whether it still exists, but there used to be a brailler similar to what Robert's talking about. And the reason I can talk to this was because my first ever job, uh, audio job, was in a radio station here in Sydney at 2SM. And Matt Ponsonby, who you were talking about at the beginning of this episode, Al, was one of the on-air jocks at 2SM. And um, my Friday, my job every Friday afternoon for about an hour and a half would be Matt would come in with his little brailing um, brother P-Touch thing and all the new CDs and carts and all that sort of stuff he would yep. we, we'd, we would go through them and he would braille up little labels that he would stick on the end so when he was yep. looking for carts or looking for CDs in the CD library he could find his way around so um, yeah there's the so Ryzen yeah. RL350 braille labeler for twenty seven ninety five. Well, there you go <laughs> George is like <laughs> there you uh, go. on Amazon I've, I use <laughs> yeah I use there's a few different ways you can do that I mean I use a Perkins with specialised paper and Michael might be able to remind me what it's called, Brailleable, I think it is, where you've got big sheets of it. I've also got Dymo labellers that you can have Braille in. I've got a stylus. I've got a whole pile of different things. Um, but, yeah, I used to Braille label CDs. But in terms of the studio side of things, no, I don't I don't need to. Um, and I think that's again, comes back to muscle memory, remembering where all your switches and dials are. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if I had to do that like Matt now, if we wind up a clock back 20, 30 years, then yes, I, I would do exactly the same thing. Was there a lot of but cussing and swearing when you were learning your way around to begin with? Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
there, were, there was lots of coffee drunk. Uh, lots of coffee drunk. There were a few whiskeys had at the end of each time. We are like, oh, my God, you know. Um, and that's also, for me, why, you know, I want to acknowledge the amount of time and effort that people have put in. And another very close friend of mine, Ian Lofty Fulton, who you know well, Robbo, um, put in an enormous amount of effort into sort of testing things with me if I wanted to test things or checking that my editing was up to scratch. You know, these guys, you know, Michael and Richie, have given so much more than just, you know, it's a lot more than just employing someone to come in, paying them to do a job. You know, these guys have really invested their emotional energy because they want to see may succeed and and that for me is is enormously special but the support i've been shown by people is i wouldn't be here talking to you without that and i think that's why i want to just acknowledge the enormous amount of, of support guidance and help that i've been given to get me there and if i can do the same for others moving forwards then you know pass it on i i feel very strongly about levelling playing fields to make it so that we do have opportunities of employment. That seems like a really good place to uh, wind up this week's episode, but I'm sure there's plenty more to cover. Yeah, we can reach out to next week now. <laughs> reach out and touch somebody. <laughs> we'll be back with That's the, the one. We'll be back with the lads next week. This show was mixed by Voodoo Sound. Edit by Andrew Peters. Using Source Connect Now and Rode Microphones with technical support from George the Tech Whittem. Don't forget to subscribe and like us. Yeah.